All right. Uh, today I'm preaching the last sermon in this series that we've called A Very Short Introduction. And the reason why we started this series is not to just learn interesting factoids about certain characters in the Bible. We want to see what God is doing in and through their lives. We are asking and have been asking the question, can we really change? What can God do with us and in us? Because sometimes we have such a low view of God or such a low view of ourselves that we're not really sure if God is truly able to change someone, us or anybody else we know. Sometimes we fall into cynicism and think that we're all doomed to be the same bad way we've always been. But the truth is, what is impossible for us is possible for God. And we've seen that truth throughout this series. We've seen God turn the coward Peter into a brave apostle. We've seen God use a very lackluster prophet named Jonah uh, as a missionary to the Ninevites and convert the entire city. We've seen God work in the midst of all the challenges that Tamar and Bathsheba faced and did something incredible with their lives. He made them into matriarchs of Israel. This morning, I want to uh, maybe reintroduce you to someone's story that you have heard before, you may know already. And the question that's been guiding me throughout this week has been, what did God accomplish in the life of this unknown teenage girl from Nazareth named Mary? What did God do in her life? Because if we know what God can do for her, why can't we imagine what God can do with this church? I don't know if this is true of everyone in this room, but I think some of us might be feeling down about UA. We've seen the decline that's happened here over the years, and it's been really difficult. It's been really challenging because we love this church. We have fond memories from the past. Perhaps some of our best friends have come with us to this church our entire lives. Perhaps you bring your family each and every week, and this morning is a special, sacred time for you and your family. Here's the thing that I want you to know. I refuse to either be cynical or naive about this church. Because as long as it's full of humans... We're not going to pretend that we have unlimited potential by our own strength to turn things around. But as long as God is here, as long as God is at work in this church, I'm never going to give up hope that God has plans for his kingdom on this corner in downtown Austin. Those are two things I want you to know. I will not be naive. I will not be cynical. Now, but sometimes what you have to do in order to look ahead to the future and what's possible is you have to look back in the past to see what God has done before. So I want everybody to go back with me to the foot of Mount Sinai. And I know this is a weird place to start in a sermon about Mary, but here's the thing. The, the reason why we talk about Mary is because we love Jesus. We're dedicated to him first and foremost, and we believe that Jesus is God in the flesh on earth. So if we're talking about God's presence in Mary's womb 2,000 years ago, then one of the first great revelations of God's presence was at Mount Sinai, okay? Because there, 
God instructed Moses and the Israelites to build something called the Ark of the Covenant. And if you didn't grow up in church, you may have never heard this phrase before. If you did grow up in church, it may sound strange to you. What in the world is an Ark, and what does it have to do with a covenant or a promise? But here's, here's what it is. It's a wooden chest that God instructed the Israelites to make that was overlaid with pure gold, okay? On each corner of the Ark of the Covenant, God, Moses made gold rings and two golden poles to go through those four rings. And on top of that Ark, he placed a seat, okay? What God was intending to make with the Ark of the Covenant through the Israelites was a throne for himself, this is not just a, a pretty box that God wanted the Israelites to make. This was his golden throne. And he promised that when the Israelites made this Ark of the Covenant, his presence would be there. God wanted to rule his people Israel from the Ark of the Covenant. And inside this throne, inside this sacred object, the Israelites placed three things. The two tablets of the law where Moses wrote down the Ten Commandments, the staff of Aaron the high priest, and loaves of manna. So you realize, not just due to the fact that it's overlaid with gold, but what is placed inside it, how holy and sacred this throne was. I mean, this is the law we're talking about. These are the Ten Commandments that Moses got on Mount Sinai. This is a, the staff of the great high priest Aaron, who mediates God to the Israelites. This is the manna. This is miraculous bread from heaven that the Israelites stored in this Ark of the Covenant. And when Moses placed these sacred objects inside God's throne, when he did everything that God had asked, and when they made this most beautiful, precious Ark of the Covenant, we're told that this cloud of the Lord's glory overshadowed the tabernacle. We're told that it was so glorious that Moses and the rest of the priests couldn't even get close to it. It was so holy. This is by far the most prized, most sacred object in all of Israel 3,000 years ago. And guess what? They lose it. This actually happens in the Bible. The Israelites get really confident and they want to take God's throne into battle with them. And unfortunately for the Israelites, the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant. They steal it from them. Now, fortunately, God can take care of himself, and so he sends plagues on the Philistines, and they decide, okay, we need to get rid of this throne thing. We don't know why we stole it, but we need to give it back to them, okay? So the ark ends up in a city called Kiriath-Jerim. Na that name isn't important. What you need to know is that the ark of the covenant is in obscurity for two decades, 20 years, and the Israelites know deep in their bones, this is our most sacred object. We've got to get this back. It can't just be out of sight, out of mind in this random city. It needs to be in a holy city. It needs to be in a special city. So King David, when he comes to power, wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. This is important. He's the king of Israel, and God's throne, the true king of Israel, his throne is, is elsewhere in obscurity. So as Kristen read for us from 2 Samuel, there's this whole procession, this whole religious event. We need to get the Ark of the Covenant, God's throne, back to the city. And here's their first mistake. They take this sacred object and put it on top of an ox cart, okay? The, ox, the, the, the Ark was always supposed to be carried by men, 
priests in particular. And so when they put the Ark of the Covenant on this ox cart, it stumbles, it hits some rocks, the, the ox trip, and the Ark starts to fall off of the cart. And this man reacts to it to try and stabilize it, to protect it, and it's so holy. I'm not exaggerating. This is in the Bible. You can go, go back and read it. He dies just by touching the Ark. It's that much more holy than he is. So David is distraught. He's, he's made this whole attempt to bring God's throne back into the city. And he says, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? This whole attempt has been a failure. It's been a disaster. And now it stays with this, this again, elsewhere from the city for three whole months. But David doesn't give up. He's going to bring it to Jerusalem, so he tries again. And this time they go over the top, they sacrifice an animal every uh, six steps that they bring it up to the city. David is going to make this the most epic worship service of all time. He dances before the Ark of the Covenant. Think about that, what that would look like to all the Israelites watching this procession. This human king, all he's wearing is a, is a linen ephod and he is dancing in front of God's throne. He's showing who is really in charge. And on this second effort, God's throne takes up its place in the holy city of Jerusalem. This is one of the most important events in the Old Testament. God's presence is back in the holy city. Now, 3,000 years later, you might wonder, okay, if we're talking about the most sacred object in God's people's history, where is it today? And if you've seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you think that maybe the Nazis found it, but fortunately Harrison Ford prevented them from keeping it, okay? If you've seen that movie, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, for everybody else, you need to go see it, okay? It's been out for a couple of years. Um, where is the Ark of the Covenant today? Well, we actually know that when the Babylonians came into Israel, they destroyed the temple, but they didn't take the Ark of the Covenant. There's a whole list in the Old Testament of all the objects they took, but the Ark of the Covenant isn't there. So you've got to wonder, where is it? Where is this sacred throne of God? We actually have a book written by Jews called Second Maccabees, which tells us what Jews believed about the location of the Ark of the Covenant at that time. This is what it says. Jeremiah, the prophet, hid the Ark of the Covenant. And he says, the place of the Ark of the Covenant shall be unknown until God gathers his people together again and shows his mercy. He says, and then the Lord will disclose these things and the glory of the Lord and the cloud will appear. Okay? Now, if you've never heard of the book First or Second Maccabees, that's okay. If you believe this story to be totally made up, that's your decision. But what you need to know is at the time of Mary's life, Many Jews expected that the Ark of the Covenant would return, that one day, even though it was hidden centuries before, it would come back. And when it came back, you would see the appearance of the glory of the Lord overshadowing something. You'll know where the Ark of the Covenant is when you see it overshadowed by the glory of the Lord. And on the first page of the New Testament, the first page of the Gospel of Luke, he says that an angel appears to a virgin named Mary, says that she'll have a son, and guess what that angel says? The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will what? Say it out loud. Overshadow you. Why did Luke choose that word? 
I mean, he knows that the glory of the Lord overshadowed the Ark of the Covenant. Why would he say that the Holy Spirit is now overshadowing Mary? Well, maybe there's a lot of similarities between the Ark of the Covenant and Mary. Just compare the two passages we read today, and you'll see these correspondences over and over again. The Ark was in the hill country for how long? Three months. Mary spent how long with Elizabeth? Three months. When David unsuccessfully brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem and it has to go away for a while, he says, how can the Ark of the Lord come to me? When Elizabeth sees Mary, she says, how can the mother of my Lord come to me? When David was finally successful on the second try to bring the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem, he leaps before the Ark. What does John the Baptist in the womb of Elizabeth do? Leaps before the new Ark of the Covenant. Now, if you think, okay, you're just, you're just trying to connect these dots and make some interesting connections, there's just no way that that's what Luke is doing. Well, think about what, what was inside the first Ark. The two tablets of the law, the staff of the high priest, this supernatural bread called manna. Well, what's inside Mary? The fulfillment of the law. The great high priest in heaven, Jesus, and what does he call himself? The true bread from heaven. The big question in the time of Jesus was, when will the ark return? And apparently it has. Can you believe that that's what God does with this young teenage girl from Nazareth? She was a nobody. Nobody should have known her name. And this is what God does with her. And if you're not impressed just by that, if you think, oh, that's a little bit tenuous, I'm not so sure, Mitch, this is not the only time the ark appears in the New Testament. One of the apostles of Jesus is given a revelation. He's given a vision into heaven. At the end of chapter 11 in the book of Revelation, John, the apostle, sees a temple in heaven. It opens, and John says, within God's temple was seen the Ark of His Covenant. Look at it, it's back. John sees the Ark in heaven. And what is the very next verse? A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. So the Ark and this woman apparently are in the heavenly temple with God. This woman is pregnant in labor. She cries out in pain. And guess what? She gives birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. If you have a physical Bible out, you'll see that in quotes in your Bible. Okay? Jesus uses those very words to describe himself earlier in Revelation. So if the son, this male child, is Jesus, who's the woman in heaven? Mary. Mary's there, and John is given this vision of her. Now, it's totally fair to ask, why in the world would God give the Apostle John a vision of Mary in heaven? Sounds like a bit of a stretch. But John himself actually tells us in his own gospel in chapter 19, when Jesus is being crucified, do you remember who's at the foot of the cross? 
His mother, Mary, is there. Not just her, but a few other women, and guess who else? The Apostle John. Jesus sees his mother there at the foot of the cross and the disciple whom he loved. That's John right there. And Jesus' final words. He is being crucified in this moment, and he has, he takes the energy to say, Woman, Mary, my mother, here is your son. And to the beloved disciple, here is your mother. And we read in John's gospel, from that time on, the disciple John took Mary into his home. At that point, she was probably a widow. Joseph had already died. And Jesus, one of his last actions on earth was to give his, Mary, his mother Mary over to one of his apostles for him to take care of her. Man, the Bible is so good. Think about all that God does in the life of Mary. I know we've been flying all over the Bible from 2 Samuel 6 to Luke chapter 1 to Revelation 12, all the way back to John chapter 19. I know we're flying through this, but slow down for a second. God makes a virgin into a mother. He makes a nobody into a somebody. He makes an Israelite. Think about Mary's perspective. He makes an Israelite into the Ark of the New Covenant. And he gives a widow a home with the Apostle John to take care of her the rest of her life. And then after Mary has passed away and gone to be with Jesus in heaven, God gives a vision to John of her. Is that not amazing to you? This is how much God cares about each one of us, that he says, John, I know you took care of Mary at the end of her life. I'm just going to give you a vision of her in heaven. It's unbelievable. God makes a teenager in Nazareth, the Ark of the New Covenant, the mother of the Messiah of Israel, and an adopted mother of the Apostle John. This is all impossible from a human perspective, but it is possible from a divine perspective. Now, here's my question for us. If God can do all of that in the life of the Virgin Mary, what can God do with our church? Is God bumbling around right now, clueless of the difficulties that we face? Is God unaware of the challenges we have as a church? No. Does he feel overwhelmed? Oh, I can't do anything with that church. Absolutely not. God could do something on this corner that will bless his kingdom for the next hundred years. It's not hard for him. It's not difficult for God. But I think throughout the past couple of months, I think my problem has been that I've just wanted God to meet my expectations. God, the only plan I'll accept from you must defer to my preferences. And the only plan that I can fathom is the one that I'll support, God. And the only plan that I'll like that you have for this church is one that keeps me safe and comfortable. 
But I just, I, I was looking at what God does in the life of Mary. And I've just seen that he just does the impossible over and over and over again. Whoever thought of a virgin birth? Who had ever seen God coming in the flesh as one of us? I love Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. It makes me think of Mary's story. Paul says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Next week, we are starting a new sermon series on the Lord's Prayer, and I just want this to be our go-to prayer each and every day, each and every week this year, because each and every aspect of the Lord's Prayer will help us as we look to the future of this church. We need to be praying for God's kingdom to come here. We need to be praying for God's name to be hallowed here. We need to pray for daily bread. We need to pray for forgiveness of sins and deliverance from evil. This series about a very short introduction to different characters in the Bible has shown us what's possible. But now I want to, I want to pray for God to act here. We need to be urgent with God, persistent to Him, and keep going to Him in prayer. I hope you come back next week and start with us on this journey with the Lord's Prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's incredible to see what you do in the life of Mary. 2,000 years ago, she was unknown. No one knew her name. She was one among many Jews, one among many Israelites. And now she's the mother of the Messiah, the Ark of the New Covenant. And we just can't even fathom that. We can't begin to wrap our minds around what you did in her life. Father, we pray that you baptize our imagination. Help us to see what's possible at this church. We can't be naive. We can't ignore the challenges we face. But Father, we can't give up hope. We can't be overwhelmed. Because you're with us. And you... You do what's impossible all the time. We pray all these things through our Lord Jesus. Amen.